始めand salutations, legionaries. Come to you today full of wrath. Full of wrath. I don't know why, just in a fighting mood today, but it's okay. I'm going to transmute that into something productive and useful, or rather, maybe I am being useful and productive because of that fighting spirit I got today. Mars came down and power fucked my mind, and so I feel here full of spirit to give you something. Anyway, it got me thinking uh, because... For those of you that have been in the military or otherwise have not been in the military and are a citizen at arms or simply a warrior of a different kind, right? You don't have to be in the military to be a warrior. And I think that's like one of the, the biggest copes or stupid things. It's like type of gatekeeping people do. And, it, you know, obviously, full disclosure, I've been in the military. You know, it's not like I'm saying this because I haven't. I'm saying it because I have. And I'm saying that a lot of people in the military are fat bodies or losers um, who don't acquiesce or don't submit to those values and vice versa. There are people that I don't, that are not in there and are who are very much warriors themselves, even though they've never picked up a rifle before, so on and so forth. You know, uh, the Gracie family comes to mind, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But, you know, that raises the question, what is the warrior ethos? What is it outside of any one specific organization, warfighting organization, which is very typified and specific to its specific genre of combat. Now, I think that's missing the forest for the trees, right? It's because instead of addressing what is the warrior ethos for a certain type of combat, I think it's actually really important, and it's something that's been stolen from us, a concept of the life that is the antithesis of the classical liberal paradigm, or rather, and I say this with all kindness and respect uh, to the Christian paradigm, which is what liberalism and later on communism have uh, proceeded from. In the words of Spangler, uh, Christianity is the grandmother of Bolshevism, right? So, you know, the daughters, of course, liberalism, classical liberalism, Adam Smith, Locke, Rousseau, Voltaire, so on and so forth. But I say this with respect, and um, I've done a lot of reflection on this question for many years, and it feels like uh, for I have many legionaries who are good Christians um, and who are, uh, you know, very good warriors and who are better warriors than I. And so I say this with respect, and I think, unfortunately, I can't add, address this question without saying some possibly negative things, but I don't think they're negative. I think, in fact, uh, the aspects I'm criticizing are not truly Christianity. However, in this transmission, I'll refer to it as Christianity simply because there's just no other moniker for it. Um, if you legionaries feel 
that there's a better moniker for it, please like uh, drop a transmission a message to me, message in the bottle to me and Sergeant Barnes here. Um, but I think just for the course of this instruction, it's important that I mention it as thus. Now, what is it? What is the martial ethos? And I guess the way that we start is by explaining the worldview, right? How we predicate everything, our values, are based on the engine of nature and life and how things are different at core. And, you know, this is something very difficult because in many ways we are fish in water, and especially if you're in the West and you live in a very decadent and safe and bourgeois uh, upbringing, you have likely never seen or experienced or inflicted violence, nor much less seen or killed anyone. And, you know, that's, to be frank, a great lament because it is basically cutting your soul in half. Because just like the seasons, there are winter and summer, um, there is war and there is peace, right? Life is cyclical and it is unhealthy to be one or the other. It is important to be dynamic. And for the purposes, my purposes, you see, I'm a warrior through and through. Mars came down and power fucked my mom. I am the son of Mars and so I have de dedicated myself to war. And therefore, my view is unipolar, right? Well, my view is one way. But don't let yourself become unbalanced. I am overcorrecting. Um, and also, I'm a freak of nature, so don't follow, but learn what you can. I would say this, is that just going back to the beginning, when we talk about philosophy now, I know, I know, strap yourselves in. I would say this, that instead of a world which is necessarily one where uh, God is outside of the world, in fact, God is in this world, the material, and we all dance in the eye of God. We're all part of that divine sentiment and exception. And the nature, the only constant of nature is flux, like Heraclitus. Heraclitus says this, and I think, for those of you who don't know, he's one of the pre-Socratic thinkers who had a huge impact not just on the Socratics, but on the Sophists and later on Nietzsche and so on, um, to have a vision of the world. But why is that important? Why is that predicate important? Well, I think it's important to say the consequence of living in a world of constant change and constant tribulation and trials and f conflict is that it predicates the world that there must be necessarily conflict. And I think Nietzsche kind of really finds the crux of this argument right here in this quote, and I read it now. Life itself is essentially appropriation, injury, overpowering of the strange and weaker, suppression, severity, imposition of one's own forms, incorporation, and, at the least and mildest, exploitation, because life is will to power. And this is a concept which is trying to explain that everything has the will to dominate, the will to make more of itself, to incorporate the forces of another and express it in the force of oneself. Or if you one fails, and one often fails just by the mere fact of mortality and this, the way of life, is that we die. 
that ultimately we become incorporated into something else. And um, I know that sounds very strange, but the implications are far-fetching, right? Because it really kind of refocuses the lens on how to address life itself. Whereas one implies that life becomes better when you are weak, when you have resigned the will to power, when you have resigned yourself apathetically or passively, uh, basically that life gets better. And that's, that's really wrong. Ultimately, not only is that not possible, it is also wrong. I mean, it's just, just fundamentally the way to servitude. It's the way to slavery. The people that actually acquiesce to these things do so out of cope for the inability to overcome stronger forces straight out. And I'll get into this in the future, but basically we are suffering from a paradigm of 2,000 plus years from the Socratics, which implies that the former is good and the latter, which is, you know, fighting, um, imposing oneself uh, in an honest and naive way, that's bad. And fundamentally, the implication, therefore, is, of course, that martial virtue is bad. In the word of Machiavelli, virtu. And I'll use this as a dichotomy between the two. But this is ultimately the, the crux of my project here with Lance's Legion in all seriousness it's to address and rekindle this vital martial virtue. And I suppose the best way to do so, or to start doing so, is to harken back to a time when the values that we hold, you and I, legionaries, are best expressed. And that's, of course, the agonal age of the Greeks. So this is the time of the Iliad and the Odyssey and so on, and not the Socratics and the Aristotelians and, and uh, their mutated forms which come in the form of um, Christianity later. And so the time of Homeric Greece, it was very much the Hellenes who imbibed or exuded, and, and through their own words and through their own sentiments, uh, the values which they held highest, which are, of course, Courage, strength, ruthlessness, fidelity to friends, discipline, fortitude, guile, and in short, basically all the warlike qualities which honored and glorified strength and the warrior and the willness, willfulness to impose oneself upon the world and become tyranny, a tyrant over it, right? And, um, you know, uh, I think... There's this great book, and it's published by Antelope Hill. It's called The Agony of Polemos by Carlos Videla. And uh, I have it here, and I think he puts it in the best way how these Greeks really thought of the world. And I'll just continue when he talks about the agon, which is uh, basically the competition, strife. And that's how they saw life themselves. So I'll read here from Videla, and uh, we'll just discuss after. Reading Videla now. The Agon was perhaps the most cul common cultural background in the Hellenic civilization. The entire Greek culture was dominated by the custom of competition, as Burkhardt claimed. It was confrontation 
in its most profound sense, more than communitarian and never individualistic. In contrast, modern competition, as Bocard explained, is determined by quite different aims, since it generally comes from a few unusually ambitious types. Individuals who have replaced the ag agonal ethic with something very remote from it, which is business competition. I disagree with this, but I'm reading now. Among all types of Greek public competitions, the most popular was agonal wrestling in the Olympic arenas. In these competitions, the athletes assumed the same role that ancient warrior heroes fulfilled in the phase of migration and conquest. In this regard, the odes of Pindar that celebrated the glories of the athletes replaced or completed the ancient warrior poems. In these Olympic odes, we find the values of the warrior code passed on to the agonal competition. According to American professors Janet Lungstrom and Elizabeth Sauer, the way ancient Greek culture embraced the agonal essence of nature was unparalleled. Greek agonal culture built a society on a foundation that did not disavow natural laws and perfectly blended in instinct with spirit, the biological needs that are prone to conflict, with the mental abstraction that allowed for the creation of culture. And in their words, no other culture in the history of the West is so intertextually defined itself as agonal as did that of the ancient Greeks. What is amazing about the Greeks' agonistic understanding is that through it they created a society that was at once nature and culture. The philosopher Benjamin C. Sachs claimed that the Greeks never considered culture as the opposite of nature, explaining rather that through the agon they directed violence into positive action and formed a culture that did not separate nature and culture. Good eris contends with bad eris, but this contention is not a relation of opposites. Instead, it's a dialectical opposition. Plutarch, a Roman historian who lived in the first century AD, attributed the love of competition to many of the great men of Greco-Roman history. A love without, they would not have been able to achieve glory and the aggrandizement of their people. This agonal and combative spirit, true to the natural essence of man, but simultaneously flexible enough to adapt, excuse me, to adapt to the abstract needs of a creative and Faustian spirit in search of progress and prosperity, became known as Philoneikia, Jesus, I can't pronounce these Greek names, or love of strife, of competition, and of struggle, end quote. Think, of course, and juxtapose that with the Greek myths. So this applies to everything beyond the physical fight, right? It, fighting is an allegory, or it's, it's uh, you know, it's something that we compare to to understand the, the schema or the way that the world works. Because <clears throat> the issue with Platonism and one we, which we've inherited to thus far is that we treat the world at like a math equation when that's not correct. Well, let me correct myself. There are, of course, many mechanistic ways that the world works. However, a lot of it is 50-50 chance, right? It's the coin toss, and who has the most will is the one that wins. And, um, you know, it's pervasive throughout society, through whatever vocation you choose to 
to go for. So, for instance, uh, the spur of competition is present in in uh, Greek myths. Uh, for instance, there's this great uh, story about the origin story of spiders, Arachne, and she was a great um, loom weaver, and ultimately she was the greatest in Greece. And she was so proud that she even uh, challenged, I believe it was Hera, to a god, a goddess, to a competition. And she actually outdid the goddess, but because of her pride and her um, lack of humility, she was turned into a spider forever to spin, spin weaves, lovely weaves, you know, whatever, right? But forget about the end part of that myth. The crux of that myth is that competition is good. It even challenges the gods. Um, and then, moreover, uh, Odysseus, right? He comes back home, and to prove who he is, he has to shoot an arrow through a number of different axe heads. He has to prove to be the superior of the suitors of his wife who were trying to cuck him. And his wife is, of course, faithful to him, but back then they didn't have choices, right? They just assumed that he was dead and that this guy was an imposter. Um, and, of course, this is different from war itself, right? Because war is obviously a competition. It is something to be left to decision of combat. Um, but what spurs to greatness, right? For a lot of people, and, and this goes to back to biology. So, biologically speaking, in mammals specifically, women are passive-aggressive, right? They don't do direct conflict or competition in the manner that we're used to, that men are, because uh, it just is uh, the way that their body is and the way the reproductive like incentive structure is, is that it, it it's too much of a risk, too little reward. Whereas for men, it's quite the opposite, that you have to fight, you have to conquer the objective and so on. However, there are competitions between women and just as there are with men, and so on and so forth, they just express it in a different way. But what I'm trying to tell you is this, is that, you know, you have these stories of men who compete and become great. But, I mean, think about your own life. I remember when I was five and I was doing jiu-jitsu for the first time. And by the way, I highly recommend you do some form of MMA or jiu-jitsu or judo. Not, well... I say this with all respect, don't do karate because I think it's a waste of time in America. Um, this is not to say karate itself is a mar as a martial art is, is wrong. It's just that in America we have a lot of stupid martial arts that are kind of like you know your strip mall type martial art. But um, anyway, point being is this, is that it kind of, there's a story where I was uh, living in Ipanema in Brazil, you know, my dad had been posted there, and basically, <laughs> I was doing jiu-jitsu, and I was fighting, and I, I basically, there's, at the end of the uh, period of instruction, there's friendly competitions where you roll, and I was fighting this kid, he was like twice, he was like seven years old, I was five, and he was like a big fat kid, and he absolutely uh, demolished me, and uh, of course, as a five-year-old, you go back home crying, and I remember the, the most helpful thing for me was how my mom treated it she basically punished me <laughs> she said no son you will win tomorrow like you didn't give your all and also it's not about how much effort you put in it's about the result you will win 
The next day, I mean, I was fuming mad that entire night. The next day, I went and rolled, and I beat him, and he started crying in front of everyone, and it felt so great. That is the essence of competition, and that is the spur to greatness if you write that large as to what the warrior ethos is. It is competing against oppositional forces and overcoming them. It is fulfilling a will to power. Now, that's obviously a very funny, short, pithy story, but, I mean, think about that in your own life. I'm sure there have been times of competition which you have felt great and boisterous of after the fact, but in America... And with most people, most families and so on who are born to bourgeois backgrounds, you are told to shun competition. You are told that that's evil and mean or whatever. And I think you're done a great disservice because of that. I think that people um, imbibe that and basically become basically women, right? You, you just become weak and it affects you for the rest of your life because you're taught that competition is bad and that manifests itself in subterranean ways where instead of being forthright and honest like no I want to beat you you have to come up with a moral excuse to try and beat someone oh this guy's an evil guy I gotta go beat him I, that's exactly the opposite of what an honest warrior ethic is right is to be able to say you are my enemy I will defeat you. And of course, there are many different stripes of enemy. Of course, there's like your friendly competition between the boys, that there's obviously rules and that you respect each other. And then there's the enemy. And the uh, Romans had this great uh, categorization of enemies. There are men, uh, there are nations who they declare as basically hostilists, which is basically just, you know, we're at war with these people, but we respect them. You know, we it's not like a... Uh, existential crisis or like something of personal animosity um, and then there's Enemicus which is basically the the nation or target in question is abominable and must be completely defeated and destroyed um, an example of this in Roman history is of course uh, you know when they fought the Germans it wasn't Enemicus it was Hostus they were just simply trying to quell and pacify the region Whereas when uh, the Judean revolt happened, basically they killed and, and all the Romans and the, it was just like very bloody and they were declared inimicus and that's why they tore down the temple under Vespasian and Titus and uh, they kind of just whacked a bunch of people in Masada. It, it was, so that's the juxtaposition. You can, you can have many gradations of enemy and competition. But, I, you know, without going further... I do want to explain f what competition is at its core, and that's what Agon is, is the competition, right? But its mechanism is so deeply embedded in nature that I can't express it in a better way than this genetic study that Videlia talks about in his book here. And I'll just continue reading from the book, and this is Polemos again. Lawrence believed that struggle was present in nature under various aspects, the most evident being the struggle between species, which fought in the context of the dynamics of the food chain, being hunters and prey at the same time. Struggle also exists between species that did not confront each other in the context of the food chain, but did so when competing for the same food, resources, or living spaces. However, a third type of struggle was intraspecific, 
meaning it took place between a, among a single species and in humans within their different groups. In the human species, intraspecific struggle is commonly called aggression. Aggression also plays an evolutionary role, despite being much less damaging and lethal than fighting against other groups, it rather serves as a mechanism of regulation of status in the sense of a method of general preservation. A moderate stru uh, struggle between human groups allows for the rise of leaders who are beneficial to the community. In line with the theories of Darwin, internal struggles among groups of organisms are caused by a lack of resources which force the conflicting parties to separate in order to achieve a better territorial distribution, therefore avoiding a greater evil, that is, the extinction of the entire group due to the complete depletion of resources in their habitat. In addition to the studies of Lorenz and Morris, the progress that has made in neurological and genetic studies has also led to the discovery of inheritable traits aimed at both offense and defense. According to the psychiatrist Adrian Rain, it is clear that a genetics of struggle exists. Sequences such as MAOA genotype, the 5-HTT, DRD2, DATI, DRD genes are the genetics responsible for the production of neurotransmitting substances such as serotonin and adrenaline can be linked to a biology that facilitates aggressive and confrontational responses. These are the so-called warrior genes, inheritable traits that have succeeded in the great struggle for existence of mankind. Professor Jim Taylor, PhD at the University of San Francisco, believes that the process of natural selection which favors the warrior genes is still at work in the modern human being. Emotions that are referred to as hot, such as surprise, disgust, and determination, are expressed instantaneously and with intensity. On the other hand, cold emotions, such as love and happiness, are not immediately accessible requiring much longer periods of time to, to consolidate. Everything mentioned above is the evidence of a long evolutionary process oriented towards the selection of inheritable traits that allow for an ever-active combat capability. Useful for securing resources and fighting for hierarchy, status, access to reproduction, hunting, and territorial defense. Even when these instincts gradually become more tempered and moderated by culture, the physiology of fighting still had to be always present and ready for use. Although engaging in constant acts of conflict could bring mortal wounds or gradual impairment, cultivation, cultivating a warrior reputation based on the controlled but effective use of aggression was fundamental because it minimized the chances of receiving constant external aggressions. So mutually assured destruction, right? I'm reading again. The research in evolutionary psychology has shown this led to the development of tactical skills that minimize the risks of fighting while still reaping its benefits, a process that resulted in the outburst of rational intelligence which is typical of the human species. Mind, will, emotions, and psychology as well as physical capabilities and biological characteristics are a byproduct of selective processes which were always geared toward the struggle for existence in the most literal sense of the expression. This physiological evolution created culture and also determines typology, including ethical and moral codes. 
As repulsive as it may sound today, the mechanisms of aggressiveness and confrontation allowed for the solution of countless problems of adaptability during the thousands-year-old evolutionary path of man. Ultimately, this instinct is what allowed mankind to continue to exist to this day. And now, of course, that's finishing Vidalia, but I would say this, it's, I would take it even a step further. It is the abandonment of this value, or rather what people rationally believe the abandonment of this value is, is actually a significant threat not only to a certain type of human being, which is the warrior, but to life itself. The willingness to confront challenge and misfortune, the willingness to overcome it, is vitally important. And um, the, the evil of liberalism <clears throat> as such, or the evil of pacifism, of socialism, communism, the will to want to have peace at any cost, is what will make you a slave. It is what will make us slaves of not just each other, but of nature. Uh, it will cause us to have a lack of willingness to confront, let's say, challenges to our existence. And so when I explicate here the universality of a warrior ethos, I'm not just talking about warriors as such. I believe that the warrior is the highest expression of human beings, and that ultimately it is without, it's with the warrior that the future is secured. It is without him that the future is lost. And it is because of inventions such as, which, which imbibe pity, pacifism, happiness, and all the effeminate qualities like Christianity in its original form, and then later, of course, socialism, communism. Of course, all these people have been very, very violent, but they've always done so towards the end of peace. And over 2,000 years of breeding down, breeding away from this warrior genetic, we have breeded, bred ourselves toward the slave. Is it that much, that really preposterous to believe that? I mean, are we as virile and strong as our agonal ancestors were? Absolutely not. Although, of course, there are shining examples which uh, strip outstrip that, right? There are those that are in you know, high martial arts. There are high businessmen who are absolute uh, sociopaths who crush anything in their way that love competition. There are individuals, of course, um, that are in you know special forces or in the military in general who thrive on that kind of environment, and that is a good thing. And so when I am talking about this on the transmission, you know, between me and Sergeant Barnes here, this is kind of the crux. I am trying to cultivate back, affirming this kind of person in the culture, in the nomos of a people, and to bring it back, full stop, back to where we belong, back to the, the time of the Greeks, where we were willing to fight honestly, straightforward, king against king, warrior against warrior, you know, uh, craftsman against craftsman, in honest competition and willingness to and in the striving for supremacy in comp, uh, competition, right? And that's something that uh, comes like acid in someone's ear who thinks that if we just got along, everything would go well. But if you notice all the, um, you know, just uh, an example from real life in the earlier Soviet Union where they succeeded, all the people that believed what I'm talking about in the time of Lenin before Lenin died, 
or was incapacitated and was supervened by Stalin, basically everything went to crap. You know, um, forget all the sexual paraphilia and the the uh, child abuse and so on. It, it, the, it no one wanted to work. No one had a need to because there was no competition for it. And I am no capitalist crony or you know <laughs> phallus folder. You know, I, I I don't like that. I but I think that the the genius of capitalism as such is the competition. It has really nothing to do with f giving people better living conditions or something stupid. I think that's like a byproduct. I think the beauty or the m central engine of capitalism itself is the comp uh, competition between industries, companies, and so on, um, writ large, of course. And um, one of the best eras in the United States that led to greatness was, of course, the time of the robber barons. So this was, you know, Andrew Carnegie. This was Henry Ford. This was a number of other different oligarchs and plutocrats who were competing with each other to make or control the most products, the most uh, the rail lines and so on and so forth, the steelworks, and to become rich like Rockefellers. Now, it's not because they wanted to become rich. It's not because they cared about the general society. It's because they wanted to become preeminent. And that is the evil of hating on things such as pride. Is because pride is good. Who cares about material outcomes? Like, yes, it, there's a certain level that is necessary, but, I mean, there are tribes in the you know in the amazons that are very content just being i don't know at a subsistence level right but what takes us to the next level is that competition it is that mutual strife and and um you know some people think that fighting and aggression is e evil because it causes us to do stuff to each other and whack each other and big big sad and stuff like that but i think i think they're shortchanging life when they don't see the beauty in that. They don't see the lovely lovely and glorified vision of competition and struggle and a good death trying to seek greatness. And and that's exactly what Homer does. And that's why Homer is such an important aspect in uh, what was called Western civilization. But I think it's just one big civilization which extends back into the Hellenic one is that idea. Now, I know a lot of you are motivated, and you could tell the style of someone's soul just simply by... You can simply understand them by what they're motivated by. A lot of people say they're motivated by material stuff, like, uh, oh, I want a Bugatti. I want, I want women. I want this. I want that. That's so stupid. I think the reality is, and maybe that's window dressing, because I think a lot of you, such as myself, I'm rather indifferent about <laughs> material accruement, right? Accretion. What do I care about? I really care about greatness. I really care about succeeding and competing against others, right? Whether it's in my personal life or, I guess, even through this. I want to be the best. And I think a lot of you do too. And I think a lot of you um, that are honest would say that that's been kind of uh, beaten or drummed into you that that 
drive is evil. But notice the people that are doing that. They're always women or old people or like weak or the people that could never compete, the people that wouldn't be possible. And, you know, that's the funny thing is that like, that's the difference between us and them is that even though I myself, I'm not the best right now, but I have this belief in myself that I can be and that any challenge that will that presents itself, I can overcome at some future point. But when I see someone, a man or a woman, in whatever field of life that's better to me, better than me, I don't feel this like con consuming jealousy and hatred. What I do is I feel like, wow, I can honor that, I can glorify that, and still, and still, want to outcompete them and use that as a spur to greatness. I, you know, getting into a room and wanting to even best the best. And though I obviously might not succeed, a lot of things I have competed with people and not taken the gold, so to speak, it's made me better than anything before. And we're seeing that on a societal level. Why is it that first world countries are not succeeding? Why they're not having kids? Why are they, why are they not living life? You, you hear stories of 20, 25 year olds, tw you know, 30 year olds of every race, ethnicity and so on, but they have no spur to action. They, they don't, there's nothing worth getting because everything's already given. And then what's worse is that that spur to action, which is competition and the glory of succeeding, is societally uh, conditioned against them. And so they have no avenue. But alas, it's okay. We were going to change that. And that's what we do, right? That's, we have the agency and the willpower to do that. But just remember that. Don't hate people that are better than you. Admire them and then outdo them. Seek to outdo them and you will become better yourself. And people would admire you for it, even though they might not say so straight out. Now, just to further my uh, thesis that, of course, <laughs> the material is not really what we care about. We don't care about material well-being. They are more like ornaments. They're more like trophies. You don't do things for the trophy. You do things to win, to to have that exaltation of the victory of success. And uh, I like bringing it back to Sparta and Lycurgus and his laws, because as Sparta is the preeminent war society, it, it is also one of the strongest cultural events of the Hellenes, even though, of course, they never left behind written words or, um, let's say, you know, the typical cultural stuff, because their entire culture, their entire city-state mission was to breed and create the finest fighting men and women the world has ever seen. And I say women, too, because the women fought, fought as well. There are a lot of jokes that uh, uh, you don't want a Spartan bride, you know, because she might stick her spear up your butt. But anyway, uh, I'm reading here from Lycurgus and his laws. I'm reading Plutarch now. Lycurgus, and by the way, before I start, this is Lycurgus setting the new constitution of Sparta because before they were weak and now he's been called back and he has a number of reforms designed to make a polis city-state culture to make them stronger, right? And he talks about first, of course, creating uh, the dual monarchy. So this Spartan kingship was divided into two and all this kind of stuff. It's unrelated, not really important, um, aside from the fact that there was no absolute autocracy in, in Sparta. Uh, there are a lot of checks and balances designed to 
further to obviously stabilize it, but to further the will to compete for political office. Now, second, and I'm reading from Plutarch now. Lycurgus's second and most revolutionary reform was his redistribution of the land. For there was dreadful inequality. Many destitute people without means were congregated in the city, while wealth had poured completely into just a few hands. In order to expel arrogance, envy, crime, luxury, and those yet older and more serious political afflictions, wealth, and poverty, Lycurgus persuaded the citizens to pool all the land and then redistribute it afresh. Then they all live on equal terms with one another and the same amount of property to support each other, and they could seek to be first only in merit. There would be no distinction of or inequality between individuals except for what censure of bad conduct and praise of good would determine. So as you can see, just from that, uh, you know, if you see in America in the West, we're so focused on acquiring material stuff that it comes obviously to the detriment of our fellow citizens, our family, our kin. But it also it serves... Nietzsche even says that that excess in material goods actually causes a dearth in cultural production and higher life. And as you can see, Lycurgus touches on that aspect. He says, of course, he touches on this. He says that what people, men, should seek is greatness and to avoid censure, the bad. The ultimate, how do you say, uh, Remuneration, <laughs> in the, if you could say this in, in such terrible words, remuneration of a person's soul and deeds was the acclaim of his fellow citizens and, and the glory to be the best, to have excellence. That's what material materialism does not do. That's what capitalism ends up undoing in a society, is that it makes us take 30 pieces of silver in the place of moral greatness. Do you get that? So that is exactly what I'm trying to go for is that, and here's the, the worst part is that in our time, communism takes, you can hear this is like an you know, equal retribution of land, which is wealth, of course. And, um, you know, you, you think to yourself, if you're any red blooded person, you're like, that is ri ridiculous. Now I understand that, but put that aside for a second. Let's step over that and say, what if we used Instead of the Soviet Union, which was doing that so that way everyone's comfy and everyone's happy, how about we did that so that way it was a pressure, so that way people were always lean, always hungry for more, and the way to get more was by doing aristocratic good things, warrior things, to build oneself up instead of aiming oneself down. And I would even go further as to say the reason why great men exist in Russia today is because of this original poverty, which is, of course, the Soviet Union was aimed downwards and we're aiming upwards, but the mechanism is the same and ended up having positive salubrious effects for the ex-Soviet states. And, of course, if you notice, in the ex-Soviet states, now that there are oligarchs and all this kind of stuff, the country suffers. And so now that's kind of a difficult thing to address. However, just have it in your back pocket. I'm not going to elucidate on too many things too much because otherwise this would turn into a five-hour long show and I'll lose your interest. I try to keep this at the one hour, one hour and a half uh, minute mark uh, for you legionaries to be able to read 
and listen and also to buy these books and read it for yourself as well because uh, that's the other thing too is that I'm only really skimming the surface probably of some important aspects there are but there are many many that are deep in each book and that cannot re be replaced by a transmission or a TikTok or whatever or a short presentation but in any case I continue this is Plutarch now with the aim of stepping up the attack on luxury and removing the passion for wealth, he introduced his third and finest reform, the establishment of common messes. The intention was that they should assemble together and eat the same specified meat sauces and cereals. This prevented them from spending the time at home, lying at table on expensive couches, being waited on by confectioners and chefs fattened up in the dark like gluttonous animals, ruining themselves physically as well as morally, and by giving free rein to every craving and excess which demanded lengthy slumbers, warm baths, plenty of rest, and in a sense, daily nursing. Oh, does that sound familiar? That is exactly what suburbia in America is like, and even though our pleasures are not as sumptuous as the ancients, which you hear golden baths and whatever, it is still as caustic to our souls or to our will to power than anything else. And that's part of the reason why pornography and sexual excess and a number of other different things are bad is not necessarily because they're like evil. They're evil because of what they do, right? What do they do? It moves, well, first of all, it changes your neurochemistry and dopamine receptors if you want to learn more about this, go to Huberman. But the <laughs> it, it changes your mind and body physiologically to be satisfied and to be sated and to not be hungry, which is what the will is, right? To be hungry for more, to want more, to conquer more. Why would you want to do that when you're being undone by these excesses? And this is primarily why I dislike... Um, the whole cult of wealth in the United States and uh, in the world, and it's it's best expressed in Andrew Tate right now, uh, which is funny because he himself is not affected by it because he's not motivated by those things. But those people that are motivated by those things and start tasting just a taste of what he's got end up becoming undone um, is pr primarily for this reason. It's because it's an energy sink. It focuses your mind on things that are beside the point, right? And, you know, I can hear a whole bunch of soys just screeching right now. We, I don't need this. Uh, I can still do this and, and do that and, and achieve great things. That's, that's cope. That's, uh, that's someone that's lying to not just us, but worse they're lying to themselves, and that is the most evil thing you can do to yourself is to lie to yourself. Because lying to yourself makes you blind to the things, the shortcomings that you have, and it also makes you blind to the good of the things that you should be achieving. And you got to take ownership of that. At a certain point, I can't reach down into your soul and strangle the weak person in the back of your head telling you X, Y, or Z is okay because blah, blah, blah. No. You have to kill that person every day. You have to know what your weaknesses are, what you rely on. For some of you, it's crazy stuff like drugs. 
For others, it's those simple pleasures of pornography or whatever. And still others, it's uh, the willingness to... Uh, it's cowardice, right? It's the unwillingness to expose yourself to danger or the unwillingness to s expose yourself to trying times to um, pain in its myriad forms. And, and the most subtle type is boredom. <laughs> Have you noticed that? ADHD and all this kind of stuff has been skyrocketing, but it's not really the case. It's, it's a kind of a trope. Really, unless you have a neurochemical, like you're botched genetically, which is a very infinitesimally small number of people, the excess number of these people are primarily those people who, um, let's say, and how do you say this in a, in a kind way? Ooh. I'm really not being kind today, am I? Oh, God damn, I should be drinking more. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is this. And I get to the crux of it. Is, um... The unwillingness to be bored. The pain of boredom. Because it is painful. If you notice that there are prison stories, uh, when they put you in solitary confinement, um, it's, a, it's a type of torture called sensory deprivation. Right, and uh, the reason why people that go crazy or go crazy in solitary confinement because they've been there for <laughs> um, extended periods of time is because it is painful. And uh, the difference, though, is that that's a form of punishment. There is no way you can reform someone or help someone by doing that. That's just aimed to damage you. Um, unless you're strong, of course. There's a guy, Wes, Wes Watson. And uh, he used that as a challenge to overcome, right? So that's good. And you can you can use any situation to become stronger, better, faster, more intelligent, more full of will. However, when you're studying, which is the best form, or you're doing something monotonous, you know, if you ever worked in construction or uh, done X, Y, or Z, everything, the majority of life is 95% boredom. If you want to overcome that, you have to get rid of distractions. Your phone, things on your phone like TikTok is probably the most acidic thing. Still further, um, you know, like constant entertainment, video games, stuff like that, that completely atomic bombs your dopamine receptors so that way you're constantly engaged. You need to stop doing that. You need to have days where you don't do anything. In fact, I have personal days where I just... I literally wake up in bed, I you know make my bed, take a shower, brush my teeth, wipe my ass, whatever. But I then transition to a whole day of doing nothing. I don't even, I mean nothing. Truly reading, not reading, not watching TV, not being on my phone, nothing. And I just sit there and think, or don't think, depending on the day. Now, I think I've already talked your ear off. And in the coming, I think it would be remiss of me to attack the people that I've, or the philosophies too much, because I don't like attacking. I especially don't like attacking things that are below my uh, station. So I won't do that. Uh, but what I would say to you is if you want to live like a warrior, the first thing you have to understand after understanding this will to power and the nature of the universe itself is realizing that pain is good. Pain is good in life. Pain shows you the way. Um, I don't like the Stoics much, 
because they are into resignation. I'm for affirmation. However, Marcus Aurelius, great guy, quotes that the obstacle in the way becomes the way. The obstacle in the way becomes the way. Give yourself totally to a mission. Be like Cortez and burn your ships and conquer or die. Don't do that just for one or two off things. Do that for your entire life. Give yourself totally and be the foremost lover of pain because she bestows gifts that are hidden. And so I'll finish off and say that the warrior ethos, it's like a heuristic, right? It's ephemeral, which is fancy smance words to say that it's uh, it's not something you can really systematize. It's not something you can really... Uh, you know, put on a piece of paper with a diagram and be like, okay, memorize X, Y, and Z and you'll get it. And moreover, even if that did exist, you'd have a very hard time. It, the, the challenge is actually doing it. And there's this term called praxis, which communists use, but it's very effective for our uses. And like Vegetius says, it's right to learn even from our enemies. And therefore, I want you to not simply know about the things I'm talking about. Not simply believe in it and all this kind of stuff. What I want you to do is start acting it out in life. Be a willing combatant in life. Be a willing competitor to be the best. Hold yourself to a higher standard. Expect yourself to be a winner and do everything you can to win. When you're, you know, obviously, it depends what it is, whether you're being a father, a brother, a sister, or wife's husband, you know, whatever, or at the workplace, or, you know, at the, you know, jiu-jitsu tournament, or, you know, obviously I have a lot of listeners in the military, same thing, be the number one PFT performer, be the best at giving briefs, be the best at marksmanship, be the best, be the best, bar none, at everything possible, do it. Give yourself totally to something. Stop being weak. And I know a lot of you haven't had the benefit of having a lion like my mom or uh, the experience or the instinct to want to seek these things. Some of you, that instinct has been trampled over and paved over and cemented over a thousand times by society. And like Nietzsche said, first it's a good thought, then a good word, then a good act, right? And so use these as a good thought to cement to break up the cement and plant the seed of virility in your soul and vitality. Set the example for others as well. Inspire them by your example. And that's the only way we'll be able to not simply reverse the maladies of our time, but to revitalize and take the future. I think that's all for today, but in the coming episodes, I will be going into specific virtues, and uh, this is juxtaposed against virtue, of course, of the warrior, um, and I'll be dedicating entire episodes to one talking about specific examples, so it will be a lot less boring than this one, but I'll be leveraging both modern and ancient stories to talk to you about each, and not simply talk to you about them, and to feel one with those ideas, but to inspire you to be one of those things. Remember, 
It is not knowing how to act. It's the will to act. I don't care about having few followers. I don't care about having few friends. What I care is about those few friends being of strong essence. One man is 10,000 if he is best. And each of you are one million. The future belongs to us. This is Lance. This is Sergeant Barnes. Signing off.